for thousands of years, we humans operated under the assumption that the earth was the center of the universe. What a compliment, by the way. What a compliment. The sun dutifully, so we thought, encircles us with its, with its perfect light. The planets waltz and the stars glitter to the delight of the human race. The stars even align themselves in just the right way to, to send us special messages about the meaning of life and our future. Quite frankly, for thousands of years, we were flattered, weren't we? But in the 1500s, a Polish astronomer named Nicholas Copernicus started making some troubling observations. Celestial bodies, he noticed, don't seem to revolve around a single point. Uh, the Earth seems uh, to be the one spinning not the, uh, and, and rotating around the sun, not the other way around. The Earth seems to be a lot closer to the sun than to, to its stars. And at some point, for, for Nicholas Copernicus, the penny drops. And all of a sudden, he realizes something frightening and troubling, and Brahe and Kepler and Galileo would confirm it, that we're not the center of the universe, not even close. Not even close. It was a sobering discovery. The idea that the earth and sun were switching places made people angry, depressed, and anxious. John Donne, the devout Anglican poet from the 17th century, wrote these anguished lines in his poem, Anatomy of the World. And new philosophy calls all in doubt. The element of fire is quite put out. The sun is lost and the earth and no man's wit can well direct him where to look for it. Tis all in pieces, all coherence gone. That's how people felt when they realized the earth is not the center of the universe. What meaning is there to life if we're not at the center of the universe? Are we just drifting off in space? There's actually no meaning anymore at all. Maybe we don't matter at all. It's been 500 years, but we still want to be at the center of the universe, don't we? We've been told all our life that we are. When you wish upon a star, it doesn't make any difference who you are, right? If you believe enough, it's going to come true. You can make your dreams come true. You know what? You can do anything you set your minds to. You should. You know, you need to believe in yourself. The universe believes in you, and you need to believe in yourself too. We've grown up with, with dreams of glory and feelings of invincibility and, and great feats of self-sufficiency, and we just assumed it would last forever. Our intuition and our trophy case and our resume all was confirming to us that the universe is trying to help us. That, that we were born to change the world and get famous in the process. And it's all very flattering. All of these wonderful things rotating around our incredibly special lives. But like Copernicus, some of us have started making some troubling observations that cast some doubt on this theory. 
We don't succeed at everything we try anymore. Even when we believe with all of our hearts. The strengths that helped us in the past sometimes fail us today. Our body, our intellect, our spirituality, our charm, our wisdom, our strengths, all fall short. The affirmation that was there before isn't there anymore. We can't seem to sustain the pressure of being at the center of the universe. We can't keep it all together. Some of us have experienced doors being shut in our face for the first time. Our talents and training just going totally unnoticed, experiencing rejection. And like Copernicus, we have a moment where the penny drops. We realize, wait a second, I'm not invincible. I'm not self-sufficient. I'm not at the center, not even close. When we realize we're not at the center, there's a temptation to float, to drift out of anxiety and depression, to be crushed, to simply float in the cosmos with no center at all. If we can't be the center, there must not be a center. We've been studying the life of Joseph and his family. You know, one of the great lessons from from Joseph's life is that a Copernican revolution might be the best thing that ever happens to you. It might be the moment of salvation because we can't handle the pressure of being at the center of the universe, being at the center of reality. No human being is made for that. No matter how gifted, no matter how special we are, no human being is meant to be at the center of reality. If you try, at some point it's going to break down. Today I want to encourage anyone out there who's breaking down from the pressure you're putting on yourself to be at the center of reality. Because today we're going to look at a story that's going to give us great hope for all who are depressed, all who are anxious, because they they feel they cannot sustain the expectations from without or within. Because today we're going to watch a very high-performing, history-making man break down. And in the process, he's going to get blessed by God in the deepest way possible. If you've been displaced from the center of the universe, if you're no longer able to to sustain that place, you're not out of God's loving hands. You're right where he wants you. Over the last eight weeks, we've watched Joseph, the the special snowflake who becomes a very mature, self-giving man, get displaced from the center of the universe and get saved in the process. And and in all of this, he he grows up into who he's truly made to be. He suffers injustice, and somehow he learns to forgive and feed his enemies. He's falsely accused, but somehow he never became embittered. He inherited serious dysfunction from his family of origin, but somehow he seemed to rise above it. He was a smug young man who who becomes a sacrificial leader. Joseph had tremendous pressure to solve a national crisis, but it never broke him. How did that happen? Did you ever think about that? Of all, the, of all the mess that Joseph inherited and all the mess that he went through, how did he not break? How did he become such a sacrificial, mature man of God who truly did change the world? Where did he learn to thrive and flourish in his weaknesses? To answer that question, we're going to go back one last time. 
to a critical moment in Joseph's father's life, Jacob. Because for, for all the mess, all the dysfunction that Jacob passed down to Joseph, there was a blessing that Jacob gave his son. It's a blessing that you can only receive when you're weak. It's a blessing that you can only receive when you're no longer at the center. It's a blessing you can only receive when you've been displaced and when you can't sustain the center any longer. What was that blessing that Jacob got? How did Jacob get it? Can we inherit that blessing also? Turn with me to Genesis 32 to answer these questions. Genesis 28 is some wonderful background, but we're just going to be looking at Genesis 32 today. In Genesis 28, we find out that Joseph's a dreamer as well, and that God is with him, and that he has a hard time seeing that. Genesis 32 is in some ways the turning point for, for Jacob and, and his, entire, his entire family. In this story of Genesis 32, we're going to observe three acts of grace in Jacob's life and ours. First act of grace is that God wrestles with Jacob. God wrestles with Jacob. Even when we don't want God to wrestle with us, he wrestles with us. Second act of grace is that God lets Jacob wrestle with him. And us too. And we need that. And then finally, when we're ready, he blesses us. He wrestles us. He lets us wrestle with him. And then he blesses us. So let's look with how he wrestles Jacob. You know, Jacob, the name Jacob means grasper. Jacob came out of the womb grasping Esau's heel. And this was a symbol, a foretelling of the rest of his life, that's what he would be doing. He would be grasping people with his greasy hands, taking something from them. He was a con artist. He could get his way into situations and then, and then take something. He would pickpocket something from that person and then leave. He did it with Esau. Esau comes in incredibly hungry. Jacob's ready for that moment. Hey, Jacob, if you want this delicious stew, you're going to have to sell me the birthright. Esau sells it to him. And then when Isaac thinks he's about to die, he comes to Isaac, his father, and says, uh, says hey, I'm, I'm Esau, and here's some delicious stew, and give me your blessing. And, and Isaac does it. Isaac's kind of dumb, he, but he does it. He gives Jacob the blessing. He's got the birthright. He's got the blessing. Then he works 14 years for, uh, for Lot, and um, uh, he's, got two, uh, he's got two daughters. Um, uh, sorry, Laban. Laban's two daughters. He works 14 years for the daughter that he loves. And then he marries her. And then you know what he does? He steals almost all of Laban's fortune. Somehow the fortune gets, the Bible doesn't even uh, tell us how he did it. He just kind of did it. He got rich. Laban got poor. All his life, Jacob has been grasping. All of his life, he's been using deception, manipulation, pressure. He's not afraid to ask for what he wants. He's not afraid to take what he wants. He's got the girl, he's got the wealth, he's got the blessing. Grasping, grasping, grasping. And now there's a final thing he's going to grasp. And that is he's going to get his brother to forgive him. And you know how he does that? He starts, he takes, he takes all of his family and all of his possessions. And then he starts sending them over to buy off and to soften up Esau. The one from whom he stole the blessing. Hey Esau, here's some, here's some livestock from your loving brother. Come on, accept the gift. This is just, this is just an I'm sorry gift, okay? Here's some, here's some livestock, here's some wealth. 
And now look, here's my family. I mean, I've got 11 kids now. You're going to hurt a guy with 11 kids. He's sending them over. He's softening Esau up. And this is Jacob's way. This is his independent self. This is how he rolls. Jacob has figured out how to not live with God. He's, he's figured out how to get benefits from God, but he has not learned how to live with God, under God, in God, united with God. He's figured out a way around that. You and I would love to figure out a way around that, wouldn't we? To be, to be independent, to not, to not need God, to be strong enough. It feels so good to be strong. It feels so good to have gifts and abilities and kind of make it feel like we are our own deities. We've got the talent. We've got the abilities. We, we've got the sexiness. We've got the finances. We've got our intellect. We've got our training. We've got the affirmation and the trophy case. We don't need God. It feels so good to not need God like Jacob. God's going to have to fix that problem. And Jacob, he's going to get blessed. He's going to have to grasp the grasper, which is exactly what he does. Let's read verses 22 and 23. The same night Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. He's getting ready. There's one more dirty job to go, and that's Jacob sending himself along, the closer, the cleanup. He's going to get up back in Esau's face and grill and be like, hey, come on. Give me the forgiveness. You, you, gave me the, you gave me the birthright. Now it's time to give me the forgiveness. And there's this mystery man that stops him and says, no, you don't. Nope, you're not going to go through with the one final dirty job. Nope, I'm going to get in your way and I'm going to wrestle you down, fool. Verse 24, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. There's someone that has met Jacob, doesn't tell us who his name is just yet, but Jacob's met his match because they're wrestling all night long. It's the only way that Jacob is going to get access to grace. It's the only way that he's going to get displaced from the center of his own universe. It's only if someone wrestles him down and makes him cry uncle Someone who can meet him in his independent strengths and independent self and put his face in the dirt until he gives up. And this is God. This is grace. God is wrestling with Jacob. It's a stunning picture of God. We need not skip over this picture of God. Jacob is trying to live apart from God, doesn't need God. And rather than distancing himself from Jacob, God gets up close with Jacob, close enough to sweat next to him, close enough to wrestle him. When God wrestles with Jacob, he's wrestling with his independent self without overpowering him, and this is so important. Why does God do this? Why does God get up close to us and wrestle our independent selves without overpowering us? How else are we going to learn that he's trustworthy? How else are we going to learn that he's good? We don't believe that. That's why we try to live independent from him. 
If you don't feel like you need God, you will live independent from God. If you don't think God is trustworthy and loving, you will try to get away from Him. You'll try to keep your distance from Him. You'll try to get what you can from Him, but like stay out of His radar. Does anyone here have an untrustworthy boss that's not good? Do you want that boss in your life? Do you want him in your space? You don't. You don't want him or her in your space, in your life. You want the benefits, sure, the raise, the access, the power, but uh, the, I don't want him or her messing up my world because he might be powerful, she might be powerful, but they're not good. We will live independent from God if we don't trust him. We will live independent from God if we don't think he's good. And the only way for God to change our view is for him to get close up enough with us to wrestle our independent selves without overpowering us. He blocks Jacob's independence without overpowering him to gain his attention, get his attention and get his trust. God sought out Adam in the garden. Where are you? Where did you go? God wrestles with us through conversation, through circumstances, through his spirit. And then God lets us wrestle him back. He gets close enough to frustrate our independence without overpowering us because he's pursuing us, but then he lets us wrestle him. Once he's got our attention, we usually have something to say to God. We usually have an accusation, don't we? Why did you let this happen? I've got a case to make with you. There is something that I wanted and you didn't give it to me. Verse 25, the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. There's a wonderful process here as Jacob wrestles God back. God is drawing out the prevailing nature, the grasping nature with Jacob. That comes out in in, in an incredible picture of prayer here. Prayer gets real, not when we're pious and are being good. That's just working the angles with the divine. That's not prayer. Prayer is when things get messy. Prayer is when your emotions come out. Prayer is when your strategies for survival come out and are exposed. When you wrestle with God. You've been grasping with men your whole life, Jacob. Grasp me. Wrestle with me. Grasp at me. We'll try to impress him otherwise. We'll try to be pious in our prayer life. Transformation comes when things get messy. And this is how grace operates. It gets close enough to take some blows. It gets close enough to get contaminated from us. And maybe it's time for you to have it out with God. Maybe it's time for you to come to a place of trust where you are willing to pray the scandalous psalms. Have you ever looked at the psalms, how raw they are? Have you ever had the guts to pray the psalms? God comes to us. We make our case and God says, yo, hit me with your best shot. Come at me. Trust me enough for this. That's close enough. If you're close enough to take blows, you're close enough to heal. One of the scholars of the gospel says this, Jesus saw himself as a midwife helping people into the new age. To do this, he was prepared to come in close. Sometimes defiling contact with those he sought to help. And some of them fought back. Some of them rejected him, nailed him to the cross. In time, God will reveal his power to Jacob. 
but for a while he lets Jacob wrestle him. He let him wrestle him all night long. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip, hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now the word touch here, man touched his hip socket, it is truly the word touch. It's not wrench out of joint. It's, it's the lightest feather of a touch. When you tap someone on the shoulder, he just tapped him on the hip socket. <laughs> In a flash, Jacob got to see the true identity of the man that he was wrestling with. In just a moment, he, who else could just touch his hip and put it out of joint? Who else but God could do that? All of a sudden, Jacob realizes who's been following him his whole life. He never knew it. Grace was following him his whole life. He was always in God's hands, he did, but he didn't know it. He was too independent. His whole life, in his joy and in his pain, in, in his blessing and in his exile, Grace was following him, wrestling with him, coming close. And it's in this divine moment of prayer and wrestling where God goes, I've been here your whole life. And it's only when he, it's painful enough that he recognizes that it's God. It's only when it's powerful enough that he recognizes it's God that's been wrestling with him and following him. So you know what he does? He holds on for dear life. A beautiful verse, verse 26. Um, then he, God, said, let me go for the day is broken. Which, by the way, according to the Torah, no one can see God and live. And God is saying, hey, you better let go. The sun's about to come up. I've revealed myself to you. Are you sure you want to see my face? But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Can you imagine, first of all, the spiritual danger, which was a mortal danger. Second of all, the incredible physical pain of wrestling when your hip's out of joint. Jacob was saying, you can go ahead and kill me. I don't care. All I want is you. You can cause me incredible pain. It doesn't matter. I need you. I've discovered my life's longing. I've discovered my life's calling. I've discovered the beauty. I've discovered the blessing. I've discovered the love that I was looking for in Rachel and, 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 and the birthright and, and my father. And now all of a sudden I realize that it's you. It's you. And I won't let you go until you bless me. I won't let you go until you give. You've caused me incredible pain, but I'm not letting you go because you're all I want. No more dirty deals. No more grasping. No more independent self. All I need is God. That's the, I need to grasp God. Even if it kills me in the process. Verse 27. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. It's part of the wrestling is the exposure of what's underneath. When Jacob admits his name, you know, in, ancient, in the ancient world, names are closely associated with character. And in some cases, you know, just really messy sin. Jacob is, in this moment, admitting his name. He's admitting his sin. He's admitting his grasping. He's come to the end of it. And he's ready now. Now that he's confessed, now that he's cried uncle, he's ready to receive the blessing 
that is so clearly at work in his son's life and so clearly at work in Judah's life and later would be so clearly at work in his great, great to the nth degree grandson Jesus Christ's life. Verse 28. Then God said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? You already, first of all, Jacob, you already know who I am. Okay, I just zoinked your hip socket. And there he blessed him. Verse 30, So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. What does it mean for God to bless us? What does it mean for God to wrestle us? These are all very difficult concepts to explain and understand even. But you know it when you receive it. You know when God's been wrestling with your independent self, drawing out your sin, in circumstances and in prayer. And likewise, you, you know when God's beginning to bless you because you're unafraid to walk with a limp. You're unafraid to day by day go, I absolutely need God. I'm, I'm, I'm deeply broken. I'm deeply sinful. And yet I'm deeply loved. I'm deeply loved. I'm limping, but the sun's shining on me. And I can walk in the kingdom of God as one who never is separated from God. Never, uh, never again will I be an independent self. God challenged Jacob to drop his false self. Hey, drop the grasper identity that you've taken on for yourself. Take on your identity of is, as Israel. Israel is someone who needs God. Israel is someone who limps into the promised land, as they would later, rather than someone who grasps their way into the promised land. A blessing from God is the ability to limp in his presence into his kingdom. As we do, he shines on us. He lives in us, and we live in him. This is the, this is the God-man encounter that Jesus Christ came to give with his life, with his death, with his resurrection. When we learn how to walk closely with God, we learn how to limp. We learn how to let the Son of God shine upon us. Jacob here is getting what he never got with his father, which was intimate closeness, a partnership, a relationship, rather than mutual manipulation. Delight, closeness, approval, security, vision over his life, the approval of the divine, the invitation, orbit around me. You have nothing left to orbit around, orbit around me. You'll be my moon. I'll be your sun. Orbit around me. I want you around. Isaac didn't want him around. He had worked 14 years uh, to get Rachel. Finally, he has what's behind all of those desires, which is a close communion with his creator. Jesus is the way in to the kingdom of God. Jesus is the invitation for us to limp our way into the presence of God, with the Son of God shining upon us. Behold, the hands of a loving God, wide open, wide open to all, whether you're a religious person or not. 
whether you trust God or not. Whether you have a case to make against God or not. They're wide open. They're scarred for you. And they invite you to come close. They invite anyone to come close who has nothing to orbit around this morning. No meaning. No purpose. It's an invitation to all who've been wounded yourself, who've experienced injustice, who've experienced pain, who've experienced deep loss. The hands of a loving God are open to you. When we set off on our own independent course and get trapped, the hands of a loving God come find us and get us out and get us free. They deliver us. When our dreams for our life become unmanageable, when pretending to be at the center of the universe isn't sustainable anymore, the hands of God are an invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When we don't have that invitation, we're in hell. Because it's all up to us to live a meaningful, fulfilled completely satisfied, completely just life on our own, and that's impossible. And it's lonely, and it's depressing. But we have that invitation, everyone has that invitation to come to Jesus because he is the hands of a loving God. And he will give us rest. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. I invite you now to stand as we confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed.